Welcome back to the Marvel Movie Minute, a daily podcast in which we explore the films of the Marvel Cinematic Universe one minute at a time. In this, our fifth season, we are looking at Joe Johnston's 2011 film Captain America, The First Avenger. I'm Andy Nelson from the Next Real Film Podcast. I'm Pete Wright, and a weak man knows something, Andy. Knows something. Today, we're talking about Minute 27, which begins with Schmidt's backstory and ends with Dr. Erskine laying out his reason for picking Steve. Joining us on the show again today and all week, it's Dr. Arnold T. Blumberg, Doctor of the Dead. Hello, Doc. Hi, and yeah, okay, maybe you're right. Maybe Tucci's accent isn't that great, but, <laughs> but I still love him. You know, it's, I don't have an issue with it because we're watching Captain America. You yeah. know, it's not like I'm watching some biopic. Would Tucci have made Schindler's List? Like, would he have gotten into, I, I, I think that's debatable, but. Well, you know, if Tucci had made Schindler's List, Tucci would have made that work beautifully. I think. Yes, that's true. <laughs> And he would have had a nice bolognese. (laughs) (laughs) Nice bolognese. So we are coming in on this uh, mid line, as he was saying in the last minute, he was saying that Schmidt had become convinced that there's a great power hidden in the earth left here by the gods waiting to be seized by a superior man. Uh, Erskine, uh, this is this is a flashback. So we're clearly getting uh, his perspective on all of things Schmidt related. But I I don't know. I, I guess at this point, we're not in any sort of flashbacks in the story where we're meant to doubt anything that we're seeing. But, you know, I mean, so we're getting this sense of who Schmidt is, that he is this uh, person who views himself as a superior person who can wield the powers of the gods. We're going to kind of see that play out over the course of the film. And and this is where we kind of get to see the two of them interacting as we see that they're in the research lab. Oh, by the way, this is all taking place in Berlin, 1938, according to the script in these flashbacks. Hmm. Um, but what are we what what's the sense that we're having of this kind of more uh, elaborate information we're getting about Schmidt uh, from Erskine at this point? I'll say a couple things stylistically first is that I like the slightly desaturated sepia almost kind of thing they got going with that. It's nice, nice as a style. I also like the way they start to show him morphing, but they're going to hold back on the big reveal of, you know, showing what he looks like, which is nice. But I mean, as far as what it says, I mean, let's face it. The Red Skull as a character is a very, very cliched, like simplistic uh, version of like an uber Nazi kind of villain. You know, and and so as far as the movie's concerned, it's doing a very nice job of, I think, creating exactly that in live action. And and uh, I also think based on what I said last time, but I actually think Hugo Weaving was superb in the part, too. Were you a, a reader of the Captain America comics? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, once I started reading Marvel stuff for most of the seventies and eighties into the early nineties. I literally read just about every single Marvel universe connected title, except maybe some of the mutant stuff. I never got into the oddly enough, never got into the X-Men stuff as much unless they crossed over with everyone else, which they did every other month. So I still knew. Yeah. Right. Right. But yeah. Oh, I read all of it. And then all of the, you know, all the, um, reprints of everything eventually filled in most of my gaps on the golden age stuff too so yeah but was there a sense from you that like because they're changing 
the the red skull like the intrinsic nature of the red skull by also being somebody who has been injected with the super soldier serum uh which wasn't something from the original comics it was just like this guy in the mask um did was that something that as you saw all of this happening did did that strike you funny or were you like oh that actually makes it better or was it something that struck you at all they did stuff like that throughout the history of the comics too. I mean, yeah. if if you really followed, I mean, and that's the other thing too is that none of these characters ever die, none of them ever go away. The Red Skull sure. definitively died like four thousand times. I still remember, <laughs> like, right when I was like in my peak of reading, I think it was when Cap hit three hundred. They did a story where the Red Skull was like aging rapidly and like dies in his arms. And at the time I'm thinking, yeah, until like six months from now when he comes back again. (laughs) But I mean, and and by then they'd already done stuff with like the red skull, trying to give himself a serum, getting the cosmic cube and becoming a God, which of course this is doing a beautiful job. I thought of, you know, picking up on. Um, So no, I mean, none of this um, seemed out of place. And also for me in general, I'm, I'm a fan that felt like, okay, I'm delighted to see the universe that I loved the most as a kid becoming live action, but I also don't really care much what they do. Like, this is not the comics. These are the movies. They've got to do what they feel works for them. And if that means changing a character or changing a backstory, whatever, I can't think of a single thing they've done where I just, the most reaction I would have had negatively would have been to say, oh, well, I wish they would have done it a different way, but I don't really mind at all i think they've done a beautiful job and the choices they make are creative choices for what best serves the movie so it it worked for me well i suppose to that end uh, it, the the concept and again going back to the point we we keep bringing up the whole two sides of the same coin by having schmidt also be a super essentially like a pre-super soldier um uh like i mean he's he's uh, essentially uh you know, gives the the superhero of our story, our protagonist, somebody who's uh, more of an equal that he can battle. Um, one of the things that I know is a complaint with the with the Marvel films, though, is that oftentimes the the villain is too much the exact opposite of the hero. Like you know, we had Stain also in a giant metal suit. Uh, fighting in Iron Man, we had the Abomination, which was also a, a giant, per, you know, person uh, injected with all sorts of stuff to turn him into incredibly strong. And uh, Iron Man Two, I suppose, Whiplash is, you know, a little different. Again, he is still wearing something with that gives him uh, powers. Uh, and Thor, it's his brother. And here, it's you know, it's uh, you know, again, Captain America and another person injected with some form of a super soldier serum. Does it feel like we're going too far down the same road, though? Is that is that something that strikes either of you? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, it Five films and it's already on, all screwed up. <laughs> carrying on your point, uh, uh, Arnold, about the uh, about the father son uh, yeah. issue. This is another one yes, that is the is. same. Like, I would love to see what happens if, let's say, the Hulk has to fight the Red Skull directly. Mm-hmm. Like, let's just see what <laughs> happens. Well, that wouldn't be a very interesting movie, and it would probably be very short. Um, and and so these these pairings, it, it it's like they once they start happening so often that you stop and think about it. Well, you've stopped to think about it, right. and it's no longer right. um, uh, it releases you from reality and into the movie. I mean, you're absolutely right. This is this is one of the main issues, but it's not just Marvel's problem. 
I would argue that this is a comic book movie problem, a superhero movie problem that has existed pretty much ever since 1989's Batman, when they decided to change the Joker to the one that actually killed his parents. And I and at the time that felt very innovative and groundbreaking and also annoyed a lot of people, the fans that are going to get angry about things, you know, and it's like even back then I was never a huge Batman fan, but I was a comic book fan. But my reaction was not, hey, where's Joe Chill? It was like, oh, this is interesting because it makes the storytelling more compact. It makes a movie going audience, especially ones that may not be really invested in a comic book world. It, I won't say like makes it simpler, but it makes it easier to parse like, you know, here's the hero and villain structure. These are two people that are, again, opposite sides of the coin, and it makes for great drama. The problem then is when you just keep doing that and stop doing anything else. And that's been going on ever since, where they always feel they have to make the villain. Sometimes the origin is identical, right? Which they kind of did too. Like they're both created by the same thing. And it's like, all right, that's fun a couple times, but they don't always have to be that. But I think Marvel has really kind of double and triple and quadrupled down on, you know, hero fights evil version. Ant-Man fights Yellow Jacket. Oh, that's, you know, and like you were saying, Iron Man 2. Look what they did with Iron Man 2. They not only gave him another suit person with Whiplash, but they also gave Stark uh, a dark side with Sam Rockwell so that mm-hmm. he could yeah, also right, have right. his evil Tony. It's It's a trap. It's it's hard, though, too, though, because it's it's like the easy way to create this emotional impact. Do we need to talk about the spiritual force wielding father son uh, uh, duo that that sort of, you know, in, in the form of Luke and Darth Vader that mm-hmm. like it's the same thing, like we're opposites in the family. We're good and evil. We're white and black. We're like those things. And I think. Part of the challenge that we're dealing with and that we start to feel with the MCU is that these stories are coming so fast, right? They're so big that we don't have time to integrate any of these particular lessons before the next movie's out. When you're doing three or four a year by the time it starts picking up into phase two, yeah. uh, you know, two or three a year at least, like there's you start to notice these things more. You notice the pattern. And, and the thing is, and I felt... Uh, I'll tell you, too, one of the things that my wife has said many times, she's watched just about everything with me, but she's not nearly as emotionally invested in these as I am from a childhood of growing up with these characters. And I love seeing it, although I still feel like as a as an intelligent fan like we're doing, you can still see the problems you can still or you should be able to still see the problems. Everything still shouldn't be like everything's always perfect. That's a terrible, toxic way to be. But but one of the things she often tells me is she's gotten very burned down on a lot of it because it's just always the same story every single time. And even the recent movies that have tried to introduce more diversity and correctly and, and welcome, you know, it's welcome, are still, though, really telling the same story just with the other characters because it's the story they know how to tell. And as you just said, when you start churning these out so quickly, it's hard to disguise the pattern that just keeps repeating over and over and over again. And arguably, if you really want to get academic about it and you go back to the days of Joseph Campbell and 
you know, all these kind of things. It's like, arguably, that is the hero's journey is a circle that continues over and over and over again. But the problem is, how often do we need to tell the story? And it's a lot. Well, it, be- it begs the question, how often do we need to or are we do have we lost the ability to truly see other stories? Right. Does everything end up fitting into a hero's, hero's journey kind of model? Uh, it, you know, if you if you squint long enough. Yeah. Well, it's that, it's that whole idea that, you know, there's only seven stories anyway or whatever, however exactly. many. Right. It's just how how do you weave that into that? And a lot of it boils down to, I mean, yes, you're going to have a lot of the same story structure. Uh, it, it boils down to how are you going to, uh, you know, flesh these characters out so that there's a little bit of a different angle. But it does start feeling repetitive after a while, especially when you step back and look at it. And that's, I suppose, why when you look at something like Doctor Strange, uh, you're like, okay, well, there's something a little more interesting going on with with the uh, the way that they built to the conclusion of that film mm-hmm. um, that stands out where it's not just you know the hero and villain duking it out I mean we still have that but then you also have a little bit more so uh, it, it's it's an interesting thing and certainly a, a something that I think is worth noting with these Marvel films because they do start feeling uh, fairly formulaic. It's, you know, it's just, and then, then I guess it's just how much do you enjoy the characters and is that something that you can look past as you just kind of settle in to, uh, to kind of enjoy the, enjoy the experience. Right. And I would argue that in the case of this movie specifically, you could almost say that when it comes to a character like Cap, whose story is so intrinsically connected to an era like World War II that they would never have even thought of, although they apparently did think, but ultimately didn't think of doing anything differently other than starting there. It works best if it adheres to the pattern and the cliches because it feels very much a product of that time, and that's the best way to do it. And it suits his character to be that maybe some other stories not so much but this one i feel you know it almost feels like it evokes the era to just stick to the pattern and do that because it feels right and and everybody is just so heartfelt in it yeah it would have felt a little more peculiar perhaps if we you know started iron man and tony stark was uh, a war profiteer and the whole thing was set up uh, in the Vietnam War, or was it Vietnam or Korea when his uh, when he first uh, originally was over it was, there? But it was kind of uh, it was kind of pre us actually being involved directly in Vietnam, but it was kind of sort of that. I think the most they say in the first version of Southeast Asia, I think they say or something like right that. when he goes over there. But yeah, it would have felt weird if if the very first film was a period piece set in that era. Right. And we kind of had that story set up in that period. It just would have been a strange way to kind of begin this whole thing. And, uh, yeah. Well, it would have alienated everybody. I think, I don't, I don't think they would have ever. No. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if there's anything that comics have always done, they've almost always been current. Like their, their characters are always of the era that they happen to be in when the writers are writing them. And yeah, yes, these characters seem to kind of live far longer than they ever really realistically should. But it's just it's because we enjoy them and they fit well in the world that we're in at that moment. And that's something that I enjoy that they do is that they tell um, stories in the present day. But yeah, I, I, it would have been weird, I think, coming into Captain America and having it be, you know, taking place, you know, the same year that uh, Thor landed on Earth. I'll also say that in in the old days, in my other life of uh, 
like being an editor of the Overstreet Comic Book Price Guide and being in comics and everything. I wrote so many things over the years where I like contributed to the overall idea that Captain America was definitely the moral center of the Marvel Universe. That was the way he functioned. And in many respects, he kind of functions as a parallel to Superman and DC in that respect, at least. They're the moral centers. They're the Boy Scouts. They're the the ones that will show up and say, isn't this a school night, son? That kind of thing. <laughs> and um, And I feel that it's absolutely essential and getting to a point where you wouldn't be able to pull it off anymore to have his origin happen in World War II as it originally did, because another one of those cliches we always talk about is it feels like arguably the last conflict we've been in in modern history where the morality was so clear, where we're in and around many other things that you could still say about war in general. You could certainly say we knew who the enemy was. It's very clear what, what the struggle is about. And so for a character like this, who is so clearly this good man, which I would imagine probably comes up at some point, right? Um, <laughs> a moral center, he's, he's best suited to be to kick off in that era the way he should. And if you did anything else, it would be so much harder to, to make that point, I think thematically. Yeah. And well, I mean, you can see that, uh, just in the Falcon winter soldier transition, right? Like you can, you can see that handoff and how much more complicated we have, uh, a, a cap in Sam Wilson and the things he has to deal with mm. regarding race and war and modern, the modern battlefield, you know, that that they never could have really gotten away with at this period. Right. That, that just feels like so much more complexity. If you try to do something more than that in this period, you end up with with the D.C. challenge where Henry Cavill's Superman ends up breaking a neck like that. It creates that level of context shock, uh, you know, when you have these characters that you think, you know, but really maybe you don't. Mm -hmm. Well, let's look, uh, just, I have a question about the montage. I'm curious what the two of you think, um, in the way that it's put together. So we're at the point in the montage, it's no longer just about, uh, Schmidt, but now we're actually getting Schmidt and Dr. Erskine together. And we have Schmidt holding a gun to Erskine's head. There's conversations. Clearly, the Schmidt is, is pushing Erskine to, uh, inject him with this, uh, formula of his. And it gets to this point where um, he kind of he doesn't force Erskine to like administer the shot, uh, which was I don't know I guess uh, maybe designed as a way to show that Erskine so completely refused that he wouldn't even do that. But it's it's actually Schmidt administering it himself, uh, which I thought was kind of interesting that he did. Um, but I'm curious what you both think about like the way that they they build this montage in kind of this. It, there's really no background. It's not like we're looking at a laboratory. We're seeing, I don't know, extreme close-ups of bubbling devices. I'm not really sure what. We see fire. We see uh, like cells splitting, things like that. Um, what do you? Th what do you both think about the way the montage plays out like that? Which kind of gives it more of this kind of dreamscape look rather than uh, like an authentic flashback. Yeah, I mean, I again, it goes back to what we were talking about before about style, which I guess is a case where you could say there's a style here because it's certainly a stylistic choice. It could have just been a bunch of scenes set in a lab set, right? And just do straightforward 
yeah, here's the day that I was there. Or or even it could have been done with a handoff. Like, I remember it like it was yesterday. And then suddenly we go back <laughs> to the. But, yeah. but instead, it's very stylistic. And, you know, what's interesting is what you mentioned that it's never occurred to me before where you mentioned earlier about, like, there's no reason to question any of this. Yeah. Um, which I never would have thought of before, because, of course, I wouldn't question what Erskine's saying. But it is interesting. <laughs> It is interesting, though, that by doing it this way, you're basically saying to the audience, this is not necessarily exactly what it looked like. This is him telling a story. Right. So I guess, arguably, you could say there's like a little element here. Of, well, we're not really seeing what happened. We're seeing like a concept of it as he's telling Steve this modern fairy tale of the guy who went wrong. Uh, and it's interesting. I never really thought that way about it, but it's obviously a choice they made. It's also a funny visually. It's it feels like a throwback within a movie that already feels like a throwback. Right. It just the the tone and texture of the visual itself feels uh, antique uh, in, in, I think, a unique way, particularly the framing and the way we have the close-ups on these characters, the way that it's not just a Schmittage, it's a Schmerskintage and wow, that, that just, we brought these characters together. You're just riding that all the way, aren't you? Yeah, yeah all the way to the bank, baby. Uh, and um, uh, and so I feel like that is that really sort of changes the the discussion. It gives us a sense of place and, and his place. But it also, it, like you said, it feels like a dream. Like it feels like we're not watching something that actually happened. We're watching his interpretation of this thing that that happened in some way, shape or form. And, and it, you know, it was either more disgusting or more straightforward than what we're seeing. But we know it's 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 slightly to the left. Um, so I love it. I actually think it's really great. Yeah, it, it plays really nicely. I, I really do enjoy the montage. Uh, Arnold, you had already brought up kind of the look, kind of how they they uh, really kind of went sepia on this. They they yeah. pulled all the rest of the colors out and just kind of kept the sepia look. I, I, I enjoy it. I love the way they do uh, Schmidt's face, as you said, and kind of that transformation. Uh, let's just kind of talk a little bit about, uh, I mean, this is where we get this sense of what this formula does, right? Where it's like, well, one, we find out the serum wasn't ready at this point. But the whole idea of it is that it amplifies what's inside you. Good becomes great. Bad becomes worse. Uh, how does that play? Does that does that work? Well, it does feel even more like a fairy tale, I think, when you get to that. It's like, <laughs> yeah. I mean, at that point, and again, I don't have a problem with any of this. It's such a fun movie and a great version of the characters and everything. So it really, I don't think I have anything that's a genuine criticism per se. But I mean, if you're going to yeah, no. if you're going to pick at these things. Hey, like, that's what we do on this show. We're we doing do. A minute at a time. Right? <laughs> yeah, which we do. I would say that like at that point, this is magic already. I mean, you'd. It's a magic elixir that he's talking about. There's no there's no way of construing scientifically what the hell that stuff is, because now he's just saying it just makes everything good and evil. It operates on good and evil. It's just magic, <laughs> which is interesting, too, because when you think about the early approach and how beautifully they thought to themselves, you know, what we need to do to get people to um like the Avengers and beyond is we need to handhold a movie going audience and start them off with somebody that looks like he's just building a car in his garage and start from the ground. And then we get to the aliens and the blue beam from the sky. And then we get to the talking raccoon, but it's going to take a while because we've got to build this up. 
But by the time you get to this, you are already talking about magic. And and it's just, you know, it's couched in scientific terms, but it's it's silliness and you just have to kind of roll with it. Okay, so here's here's a question. The serum was not ready, as we find out. Um, one, how does he know it's ready now? And two, is the fact that the serum was not ready what turns the Red Skull's uh, or Schmidt's face red, like kind of transforms his head? Is that part of the bad becomes worse? Or does it matter? Or is it just that he's not, it's not completely ripe? Sometimes yeah. color changes. <laughs> He's a fruit, is what I'm saying. <laughs> I don't know. It's weird, too, because, yeah, in one breath, he's saying this is what the serum does. But then in the next, he's saying, but it wasn't ready. Yeah. It's like, but but you're saying the point of this was to enhance what's already there. But maybe the physical effect was also like collateral damage. It wasn't supposed to be quite that way. Although, again, it makes sense. It turns like you know, uh, Steve from like little spindly Steve into, you know, big man, Steve. And, and that makes sense physically along with the other effects. And maybe the skull thing makes sense. It's like, it's revealing who he is inside, which is evidently a bright red skull. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so of course that's what you look like on the inside. Well, <laughs> I mean, it does show his face kind of doing that transformation thing when he says bad becomes worse. Right. So it does make me think that's not necessarily, a, a side effect of the serum not being ready, but it is like, you know, his inner self coming out, yeah. that sort of thing. Um, do either of you question, though, that um, that he also is super strong, but does not become buff like Steve? Like, should he be uh, have the same body, essentially, as Chris Evans? <laughs> well, it's possible that he does. And what we've interpreted as shoulder pads in his suit are actually just very sharp shoulders and we just don't ever see him in a in a white t-shirt so the the bad version of the the muscles you're you're very sharp muscles angular very angular sharp here's muscles. A, yeah here's another interpretation that i literally just thought of the second never before. Uh, <laughs> why we're here which is if the serum works like this magic that it like pulls out of your brain like what you are and finds you good and makes you great and all that stuff maybe it also operates on your brain in different ways so for example schmidt is from a culture that believes they're the superior race they're the master race he doesn't need to be physically improved right because he already thinks in his mind i'm already perfect that's why he doesn't change steve has spent his whole life as a spindly little thin guy wishing he could fight back and become something better physically uh -huh. even though he's already a good person inside so the serum gives him the body to match the rest of him and that's why that happens. I like that so much. Oh, well, there you go. Except he does. Except Schmidt is also super strong. He is we super do strong. He just, just doesn't, he doesn't need. He doesn't need he doesn't, to look need, like okay. it. Yeah, he doesn't need to okay. look like it because he feels he's already a perfect example of humanity. So, so is, what's that saying about Steve? That he really like he needs he needs that gratification of of looking great. Well, that's what he's <laughs> that's what he's grown up his whole life believing is what is how you look when when and is how you win the war yeah, right right like he needs to be a hero so he has in his head a visual of what that hero is and that's part of it yeah and the series well says, this okay. isn't a, a certainly not a credit to us but we've we had another guest who, on the show who, who was talking about this point and i think it calls back well to this point which is that this is a movie where really the message is the little guy 
is not enough to actually change the war. Like the little guy has to be augmented in order to really do his thing. Like this image of who the proper soldier is has to be manifested in Captain America for the rest of the movie to start to to play out. And maybe that's the same on the other side with the evildoers. Like he, he, how is he really to acquire the kind of power without being able to truly strike fear in the hearts of men? Yeah, it's a good, it's an excellent point. And I wish I could remember now. I feel like it was another Marvel thing where uh, Natalie and I were talking about how we felt that there was a, an unintended, probably unintended, but almost insidious other message coming through that was not a good one. I can't remember now what we were watching, but this is a good example of it because like the whole movie keeps drilling into you need the good man, you need the little guy, but actually what it says is you need the little guy and then we're going to turn him into the big, strong, muscle-bound guy because that's what (laughs) we need. And that's not what the movie is trying to say, but that's what it winds up saying. And you're right. It's it's a problem with a lot of this stuff. But I mean, you know, not to spend too much time on that, but I mean, you could argue all the different things about superheroes themselves being very problematic images of like a certain fascist kind of approach to, you know, law and order and 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 heroism and everything. And Cap is himself kind of problematic. I mean, he's very jingoistic figure he's wearing the flag and you know it's it's a tough one we love these characters if you're a fan and you love these characters but also there's a lot of issues with these characters and they're part of a long history of these issues so yeah well they have done a good job of of making him for the films not necessarily just jingoistic america but absolutely like an ideal Right. And, and, and I, again, I, I he never was. He never was, because one of the things that certainly Stan and a lot of the others knew was that their idea, at least of Cap, was he's a representation of what America should be, not what it is at any given point in time. When the again, when the enemy was clear, when you're fighting Nazis, it's not difficult to be able to point to the Nazi and say, that's what we need to stop. But for instance, in the 50s, they transformed Cap temporarily into Captain America commie smasher and had him go after the Russians. And that era was so problematic for a variety of reasons, they later retconned the whole thing and said that wasn't really him. And then in the 70s, they did the whole thing where he dropped the costume during Watergate. He was like, I don't believe in this country anymore. And he became nomad for a while and like literally wandered the country as a you know, deflagged version of himself because the whole point was Cap is the best of us, but he's not the government. He's not the flag, really. And uh, unfortunately, that's not always that clear cut. But that's the reason why I like that character. That's what I hold on to for why that character is good. Good stuff. Well, um, we get uh, toward the end of this conversation of Erskine's starts telling us why Steve was chosen. I think we'll just save that for the next minute because we're going to, uh, we don't quite get through the whole thing. Uh, So we'll, uh, we'll hold on to that. Um, The only other thing I wanted to say is there's one more soldier who passes by a window at 24 seconds in and never shows up again. Where do these soldiers keep going? True that, Andy. It's the Bermuda Triangle of soldiers. They're all in a room at the TVA somewhere. That's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. Uh, Do either of you have any last thoughts about this minute? I'm good here. Yeah, I'm good. All right. Uh, Well, Dr. Blumberg, would you like to tell everybody again where they can find more about what you are up to? 
Absolutely. Listen to me and my wife, Natalie, talking about all the horror and sci-fi and other movies we keep subjecting ourselves to so that you don't have to <laughs> at ghoulsinthehouse.com and check out my publishing company at atbpublishing.com. Excellent. Well, thanks, as always, for joining us in today's minute. It's a pleasure. Pete, thank you. Off to Bermuda. Gotta find the soldiers, Andy. Gotta find the soldiers. <laughs> Until next time, true believers. Marvel Movie Minute is a production of True Story FM, engineering by Andy Nelson. This season's music is Spread the News by Anthony Vega, and this season's show art is by Winston Yabo. Find the show at truestory.fm, and if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, consider doing that for this show. <laughs>